listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. So I have a question for you. That love is patient, love is kind, it's not boastful, it always prefers the other. You've heard that passage of Scripture before, right? Yes, very good. Thank you. And uh, where's, what's the context that you feel, you feel like you're most apt to hear that text read? Weddings. Weddings. Yeah, it's a really, really popular wedding passage. And so Paul has painted this picture of love. It's a beautiful description of love. And we read it in a wedding that says, when we're reading it in the context of a wedding, it seems to suggest that these two people that are about to marry one another have found their kind of perfect match, that they've, they've reached this really high bar of love, this beautiful love that Paul has described. And if you ever are fortunate enough to find that level of love with someone, you should marry them. But there's a problem with that understanding of the text, is Paul at times will talk about marriage, but this is not one of them. There's nothing about marriage anywhere near this passage of Scripture. And when we read that text, so often in the context of a wedding service, it gives us the false impression that Paul is suggesting some really high bar, when I think what he's actually doing is suggesting a rather low bar. So Paul, in this greater context, is talking about spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church. They're quite exuberant. They like to express their spiritual gifts. And when Paul was in Corinth, he was... Uh, bivocational. He was pastoring the church and he had a job. And his day job, he was a tent maker. He worked with canvas. And uh, the largest uh, tent buyer in the ancient world would have been the Roman military. They bought lots of tents. They had whole cities, basically, of tents, right? The Roman legions that moved them along. But other places would buy tents too. They used, they used tents for like athletic events. There was a really huge one there at Corinth every other year called the Isthmian Games. But then even in town, like if you were really wealthy, you might have a shop and, you know, that was enclosed with a, like a stone roof. Um, but if you didn't, you, you, your little shop might just be out kind of on the street. So think of like a farmer's market. Right, So there's kind of shop after shop after shop, and then out on the street, there's kind of like tent after tent after tent, and everybody's kind of selling their goods. And so Paul probably didn't have a shop there in Corinth. He would have had his own little tent, right? And what he is making is tents, right? He's making canvases. And the, the next person might have sold, I don't know, candles, and the next person might have sold spices. <coughs> Excuse me, but not very far away, and probably one of, the, one of the nicer shops was the brass maker. And so I, brass, you don't have to heat brass up to, to um, mold it into something. You know, you might be making a bowl or a plate or a mirror or um, a helmet. Like if you think of a brass mirror, um, imagine you know, some really shiny piece of brass, like a, I don't know, like a, a musical instrument except that if it, was, if it was flat instead of curved, you could get a pretty decent reflection out of it. But to, to bend brass, again, you don't heat it, you just bang it. So imagine what that would have sounded like all day, just somebody with a hammer just banging the brass away. 
Like, think, think if uh, a, a two-year-old or three-year-old came to visit your house, or, or worse yet, a couple of them, <laughs> and somehow they found their way into the kitchen and pulled pots out of the cupboards and said, hey, this sounds interesting. Bong, 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 right? It would, have been, it would have been incredibly irritating. I would irritate you all right now, but I don't have anything to hit this with. And so Paul was hearing of that all day, sewing his tents, bang, 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 sewing his tents, sewing his, bang, 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 sewing his tents, sewing his tents. And he got home that night, and he was thinking about the church and how they like to, you know, reflect about, you know, their spirituality and the, the importance of, of their spiritual gifts and how they had the spirit and they could do all these things, prophesy and other things. And Paul's like, look, you can, you can do all that stuff. You can have words of wisdom. You can have words of knowledge. You can um, prophesy. You can speak in tongues. But if you do that and you don't have love, you're like a banging gong and a sounding cymbal. Paul probably had a headache as he was writing that. <laughs> Right? He had a headache from the banging gong and the sounding cymbal that was just a few shops down the road. And that's what was kind of in his mind. So when Paul says this beautiful poem about love, it is patient, it is kind, it doesn't boast, it prefers the other, it never fails. Again, he's not saying, wow. I know none of us are ever going to actually practice this, but if you get close to it, marry that person. He's saying this is the basic standard of how we should treat one another. Again, Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is not a high bar. It is a low bar. It is the basic expectation. 1 John will tell us, if you do not love... You do not know God because God is love. Think of that. If you do not love, you do not know God, for God is love. Not God is like love, not love is something God does, but God is love. God's essence, God's actions, his, his work, right, are not separate. God's simple in that regard. He is what he does, and he does what he is, right? And God is love. Now, we can say other things about God, but there's nothing that we can say about God that is ever at odds with the truth that God is love. God is holy, but God's holiness and God's love are not in competition with each other. God is just, but God's justice and God's love are not in competition with each other. God is love. And so this love that Paul is talking about is love that we need to have for one another. In John 13, Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples and he's, he's realizing that his time has come and he's about to leave them and he's trying his best to do one last big preparation of them before he departs. So he washes their feet. 
He promises provision. He predicts his betrayal. He talks about the solidarity he has with them. And then he says this, because he's talked about how he's in the Father and the Father's in him and he's in them and they're in him. Very poetic again. But he says this, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Now, typically, I wouldn't be very fussy about different translations. I think all the modern translations, English translations, are really good. They really are. But on this particular sentence, I think the the grammar might be suggesting something to us because the word for love in that sentence is a noun, not a verb. This is how the world will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. He doesn't say that you love one another, but you have love for one another. It's an interesting way to even phrase it. So what I think might be said there is if we were known simply that we love one another, it might sound like that's something that we're doing, and it's function, it focuses more on our capacity to love which sometimes my capacity to love is not so good. I don't know about you. But what Jesus has said up until that point is that he loves God and God loves him and he loves them. So now they have the love of God and that's the love they have. So the love that they have for one another is the love of God that's been given to them. So, I mean, God is so good that if he requires us to do something, he kind of provides the provision whereby to accomplish it. So he's telling us this is how they'll know that the world will know that we're his disciples, that we have love. But it's love, I think, that he's given us. So the love I have for others is the love that God has for me. He's given me that love, and now I have it. And having God's love, I can now share with others. This is, this is the way God works. God is always making promises and keeping promises, uh, fulfilling those promises. There's this passage that speaks of Jesus in Philippians that uh, having equality with God, but considering it not something to be grasped, he poured himself out or emptied himself even to the point of becoming a human and was obedient even to the point of dying on a cross. And, and God then raised him up and set his name above all names so that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Right or confess. But when we think of that, we shouldn't think of that as Jesus, like, I should have done an object lesson here. Like, if, if Jesus is a pitcher of, of lemonade and he's being poured out into the glass, eventually the pitcher would get empty, right? Like, you, you, could, you could pour the pitcher until the pitcher was utterly empty. But when it talks about Jesus emptying his divine nature into the incarnation, right? The divine son emptying the incarnation, the divinity into humanity. Jesus never lacks any divinity. 
right? Jesus never becomes less divine than he's always been, right? We, the Father's always been the Father. The Son has always been the Son. The Spirit's always been the Spirit. This is kind of basic Christian theology. But if, if Jesus is pouring out, right, divinity into humanity, right, then, and if Jesus' divinity is an unlimited resource that never, never empties, then what happens with a finite vessel in which it is poured? If I had a pitcher of lemonade and I tip it, except it's never gonna, it's gonna constantly be full because it can't be emptied. You can't empty Jesus of divinity except he's pouring his divinity into humanity. So if it's poured into the cup, a finite cup of humanity, what's going to happen? It overflows. Exactly. That's how this works. We are filled with the Spirit of God, but that doesn't mean that somehow the Spirit's no longer the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit of God, and as, as receivers of that Spirit, it overflows in our life. My cup runneth over, the psalmist would say. Means that it comes to me, but not just for me, right? But through me. And this, this then is the defining factor of who we are as a people. We are people of the Spirit. People of the Spirit who are filled with the love of God. For his law is love and his gospel is peace. You know that line from O Holy Night? I would preach it right now, except I'm preaching it on the 19th. <laughs> we've, we've got some things scheduled, so I've got to hold back on that. But, but let me say this about, about this love and about how, how essential it is for kind of who we are. Sometimes I hear people kind of describing God in ways that make... The God, particularly as God is depicted in the Old Testament, somehow different than who Jesus is. This was our Easter series, right, this year, a more Christ-like God. So we're, we're kind of underscoring that just a bit here as we talk about this, this lesson about love and, and Paul's description of love. Jesus is the truest and the fullest Revelation of who God is. There's nothing that you can say about Jesus, about Jesus' character, that you can't also say about God in the Old Testament. Jesus and God are in no way in competition with one another, and they're in no way at odds with one another. So when we think about the love of God, the, the truest picture of God's love is Jesus on the cross. God was willing to die in the name of love rather than kill in the name of justice. Like, that's the God we serve. So, Jesus, the cross is not something that's inflicted on Jesus so that God can forgive the cross is something that God endures while he forgives. I'm going to say that again. 
The cross is not something that's inflicted on Jesus so that God can forgive. The cross is something that God endures as he forgives. What did Jesus teach us to do with our enemies? Love them. Yeah, that's bizarre. Right? Moses had said, love your neighbor. That sounds kind of hard itself, depending on who your neighbor is, right? Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe you got great neighbors. I got great neighbors. I'm not actually talking about my neighbors. I was hypothetically talking about other people. Right? Moses says, love your neighbor, but we also know that can be hard because sometimes I'm the neighbor and I'm kind of hard to love. <laughs> but Jesus says, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people, and as for your enemy, feed them. That's Romans chapter 12. We talked about that last week. Romans chapter 13, he says, the whole law is summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's love. What does Jesus teach us to do if someone hits us on the right cheek? This is, this is more dialogical maybe than you're prepared for. What does, what does Jesus teach us to do if somebody hits us on the right cheek? Turn the cheek. So that's what Jesus says we ought to do. So is Jesus, is God a turn the other cheek kind of person? God more revengeful. So do we ever see Jesus being struck on the cheek. I mean, the cross is the ultimate example of an innocent person being struck. And what does Jesus do on the cross? He says in his final breath, Father, forgive them. When Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them, that is the ultimate example of the turn the other cheek. Like, that's the way our God lives. That's the way our God calls us to live. And we see it in that example. That's who our God is. So to follow our God, to be filled with our God's spirit, to be the people of our God, means that we too will be people of love. We are the turn the other cheek, go the second mile, give them your shirt when they sue you for the coat, judge lest you not be judged, judge not lest you be judged people. We are the people that are patient, that are kind, that are generous, that don't boast, that prefer. If we take 1 John's statement, if you don't love God, if you don't love, excuse me, if you don't love, you don't know God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love, right? So if we take that statement, God is love, and then we could reread 1 Corinthians, and every place where 1 Corinthians 13 says love, substitute the word God. God is patient, God is kind, God doesn't boast. God doesn't fall. God doesn't fail. God always prefers. That's the God we have. That's the God we serve. And so that's what we're called to do.
So um, scripture is this beautiful gift that God has given us to kind of lead us in, in the ways of truth. But at times we, I don't know, mishandle it. Paul says to Timothy once, he'll say, you don't need to be ashamed, uh, a worker laboring in word and doctrine, like, like laboring in word and doctrine, having to figure this out, right? What does this mean? How does this work? Um, then he says, rightly dividing the word of truth. So if Paul suggests to Timothy that one of the things he needs to do as he labors in word and doctrine is rightly divide the word of truth, it suggests that it's possible to, to wrongly divide the word of truth. Exactly. Best example of wrongly dividing the word of truth is probably Satan's quotation of Psalm 91 to Jesus and the temptation, right? Satan says, um, hey, the, the, the Lord says he has given his angels charge over you lest you dash your foot against the rock. So why don't you just go ahead and jump, <laughs> Right? So he uses Psalm 91 to suggest that Jesus should jump off the temple. (laughs) That would be wrongly dividing the word of truth. (laughs) Psalm 91 is not a proof text for uh, putting your life at risk or trying to take your life. You, You with me there? That's wrongly dividing the word of truth. If I can be so bold, sometimes when we read texts like 1 Corinthians 13 and we we read them so often, like in a wedding context, we will end up, again, wrongly dividing the word of truth, thinking that that only has to do with about marriage when it actually has to do with all of us and how we relate to everybody. Um, another example real quick. You know this passage, uh, pressed down, shaking together, running over? You know that one? Somebody laughed, right? So... Where have you most often heard that passage of Scripture? Shaken down, pressed together, running over. Offering, Offering, yes, on the offering. So we take an offering up here at Oasis. And certainly I believe in a gospel of abundance. Jesus says, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. This This is the good news. And there's plenty of principles in the world about reaping and sowing and about Planning, you know, read Proverbs or read Galatians. Except that, once again, that passage of Scripture isn't talking about that. And you can't change the subject and think that you just get to apply it however you want. I'll choose 1 Corinthians for weddings. I'll choose uh, press down, running to go there for offering. That's wrongly dividing the word of truth. He says in that context, if you forgive, forgiveness comes back. And then he uses the analogy of press down, shaking together, and running over. So you should try that. When you forgive, forgiveness comes back at you and multifold. You can't necessarily change the topic. It's, this is the word of God. We're, this, this, is not, this is not the word of Robbie, right? It's, it's, not the, it's not your word. We're trying to follow what God is teaching us. So again, just to be clear, I'm not saying you should never read 1 Corinthians 13 
in the context of a wedding, nor am I saying that there aren't principles of stewardship taught in Scripture. But these texts are teaching very specific things. And this text for Paul on love is about us. And it's about how we treat one another. And it is not, Paul is not treating it like some lofty goal. He's treating it as a basic standard. This is what is required of you. Because without this, everything else is just a bunch of noise. And we don't want to be noisemakers. We want to be a people of love. Barbara uh, Taylor Brown says that uh, there are a lot of people in church that need to be saved. Even that statement's an interesting one, right? And she says, at least part of what they need to be saved from is the idea that God sees the world exactly the same way they do. That's good, isn't it? God save us from that. Save us from that misperception that the way we see it is just the way you see it. But instead, give us eyes to see as you see. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Fill our hearts with your love, so much so that our hearts overflow, so that we then have that love for one another. And people will know that we are the disciples of Jesus because we have that love. That's who I want us to be, Oasis, a people of love, that we see love and we experience love and we share love. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.